Over 30 years of advice for your house, home, castle, or cabin. Y'all have things you want to get done. It's Rosie on the House. Welcome to hour number three of Rosie on the House, our 10 o'clock hour, the open home hour, open to you, the Arizona homeowner, about whatever is important to you on your home, castle, or cabin. And the special broadcast today, July 4th weekend, happy Independence Day to you all. We are joined with Dr. Dean from Grand Canyon University. We wove in the Declaration of Independence through our 9 o'clock hour, and we're going to talk about the uh, Bill of Rights a little bit this hour as we continue, uh, you know, little bit sidebar of typical home improvement, but it's because of these that we get to live in our homes in this great country. And uh, we're going to talk about flag etiquette as well, making sure we've got uh, our flags properly displayed on this uh, Independence Day weekend. And that's one thing that, you know, certain parts of the South, you know, you can come in through a, a small town and see more flags and a one mile stretch <laughs> than you can driving, you know, 10 city miles through Phoenix or Tucson. It is. And we're going to, we're working to change that. Let's get, let's get old glory waving big, bold and proud. Uh, I ended the last hour congratulating Arizona game and fish for increasing their lake patrol, particularly on holiday weekends to try and get drunk operators out from behind the wheels of their boats. Could I, uh, take one minute before we start and congratulate ADOT. They're paving I-17. Holy cow, man. How long has that been in the work? Southbound I-17 from Flagstaff will be constricted to one lane most of the summer. So those of you that run up to Munns Park and the Flagstaff and Coconina County areas for your cabins on the weekends, just know You need to plan your return trip. I wouldn't be caught dead leaving Flagstaff, heading down I-17 after 11 o'clock in the morning on Sunday for the rest of the summer, and I would just stay till Monday night. So, I I mean, I know know dirt roads in Pinal County that are smoother than I-17, so this is long overdue. Yeah, Owen, when we coming back from our road trip towing the horse trailer— there are a lot of times, and I know it aggravates people, but if you see somebody in a horse trailer in the fast lane, they're just trying to save their horses. You know, you, know, you got to think about those guys standing back in that trailer bouncing around like that. They're just they're just trying to save their horses. Relax. Well, I'll have to send a thank you note to my good friend Doug Nensel. Doug, thanks for finally getting to I-17. Oh, my goodness. But it will create some huge delays coming home weekend traffic from the Coconino County area uh, this summer. So be aware that, of that. <laughs> I guess that's one great thing about Arizona is we're, we don't have many high regions that are constantly under that freeze-thaw snow cycle. So we're spoiled by good roads. Yeah, right. Uh, <laughs> they might be hot roads, but they're, they're better roads than a lot of the country just because we don't have that, that freeze-thaw cycle like you get in a lot of the cold parts we want to talk this hour a little bit about flag etiquette and displaying the flag but i'd like to bring dr dean back into the conversation here uh we talked about the declaration of independence declaring king george these are all the things we don't like about you and the way you run things and we're going to declare to all the world our independence we're, our independence. we're done with you we are done with you 
Now, uh, that leads to a disagreement. It, well, it, <laughs> and a little bit of war and things. But uh, kind of the big issue that, that comes up was, well, okay, now what do we do? Um, and fighting that, that war of independence, uh, we had a, a, a Continental Congress that was doing things under a document that was called the Articles of Confederation, which is basically a treaty amongst the 13 colonies, now we'll call them states, that are all trying to work together. But this document was horrible because it wasn't a centralized government. It was a centralized bureaucracy trying to herd 13 individual states with all their own interests. I don't know how they ever got to that. I don't know how they ever got to the consensus of this is how we're all going to agree to operate individually. Well, this document was (laughs) was horrible. It took a vote of nine uh, states to get anything passed. And if you wanted to change the rules, all 13 had to agree. So Rhode Island had to agree with Virginia and Georgia had to agree with New York. And it was a mess. And then they couldn't get much done because none of the states trusted any other state to do <laughs> things, let alone a central government, because they'd just gotten away from a central government. And so this Articles of Confederation was a very weak document. It had no president. It had no judiciary. Uh, it was just this legislative administrative body that was would beg for money from each of the states and beg for militia from each of the states and then try to plan a war and operate a continental army and a whole bunch of crazy things all at once. What's the date of the Declaration of Independence? The date is 1776. Okay. July 4th was kind of a commonly agreed to date. There's some there, there's some bickering back and forth. Uh, and the deck so 1776, we declare mm-hmm. we're gonna we're gonna seek our independence. We are independent. When's the when's the Constitution signed? It doesn't get ratified until 1789. So we have this almost 10-year, 15-year period of time where things are just like, well, how are we going to do this? You know. And the Articles of, of Confederation tried to kind of fill that gap? They, that was what they were working with to try to fill that gap. Uh, it was a, a legislative body that was making rules and trying to understand how, where's a, how do we do a bank and how do we finance stuff and how do we pay our troops and how do we negotiate peace with France. And, I mean, all those different kind of things were all done in this committee of delegates trying to get this done, but there was no executive branch that would do things once Congress said, here's a law, here's a building, here's a a thing to do. And you didn't have a legislative branch, really, because the states had to go back and kind of ratify and tell their delegates what to do. I'd, um, I'd like to take this moment and pause and give my wife credit. I apologize for complaining about how hard it was to start a remodeling company. <laughs> <laughs> oh, when we did back in the 80s. Holy cow. Starting a country and, and the amount of wisdom that it took to put together this document, it's awe-inspiring. Right, and the key way to kind of describe it is a a treaty between 13 states on how they were going to do stuff when they had to work together. That's pretty much what it was. But that was inadequate to actually setting up a country. And then this question of sovereignty, of union, who's in charge, all those things come up in that Continental Congress as the debate that forms the foundation of our Constitution. So where does this land surveyor come in? When does he enter the picture? Oh, you mean that fellow George Washington? Yes. Oh, he's been on the scene for quite a while. (laughs) 
you know, he had this nice estate just south of Washington there, Mount Vernon. He was an old veteran from the previous wars um, in the wilderness and whatnot. And he was a he was a man about town and whatnot. And he was actually the the, the president of the Continental Congress the that presided over those things. But he had no authority. He couldn't lead an executive branch. He didn't have any authorities to do that. He would just show up every day when this group would come together and he would call them to order with a gavel. And he would say, OK, let's break for lunch. And you guys stop arguing over there. Listen to this guy over here. And he'd kind of break up those things. He'd bring donuts and coffee or whatnot. Okay. And, so, and, and what really was kind of interesting is when they started the debate about trying to pick a, a general to lead the Continental Armies. He was like, pick me, pick me, pick me. Was but he, he really? Could, but he couldn't say that out loud because that would be very undignified. Yeah. So he would show up every day in his uniform, left over 20 years old. He kind of squeezes into <laughs> it. The buttons are kind of popping. And he'd show up every day, pass out coffee, and here's some pastries and whatnot. And don't forget, we're going to be talking about a general today. And, um, you know, they wear these kind of uniforms. They look like this. And so eventually they, they, you know, they were debating all kinds of different people. And there were several people standing up and, you know, that was in the mix. And he was kind of in this, slowly somebody said, what about you, George? Are you interested in this job? Well, I don't if Might I have must. to talk to Martha about that tonight. <laughs> I don't know. I know it's going to be away from home a lot, but if you really insist, I guess I'll do it. You know, but he was, you know, he was kind of vying for that job because there was no glory in what he was doing as part of the Articles of Confederation under the Continental Congress. And there trying to come up with a single document that can then overcome the weaknesses of these articles of incorporation. They need to run a country and then they need to talk about these philosophical ideas of who's in charge and how does that work? Well, when we get back, I'm going to have to answer this text from someone that wants to know all the things they need to consider to convert a carport to a garage. (laughs) And And then we'll get back to George Washington's campaigning to become the first general of the United States of America, the Continental Army. Fourth of July weekend here at Rosie on the house. If you're out and about traveling, uh, safe travels, have fun. Like Rosie said, last uh, break, I-17 is under construction southbound. There are other ways to get home. You know, you can take a detour. You go to Ashford, <laughs> come down 93, yeah. come through Wiki up and Wickenburg, and go over, uh, I can't think of the highway name, but come down through Winslow. You know, uh, when we left the Holbrook last time, because of construction that we passed uh, going to the fairgrounds, uh, we came back through Winslow, Clint Wells, <laughs> and I actually remember that, and we'll remember that because that was the first time one tank of fuel cost over two hundred dollars, and I saved that receipt. Uh, but that'll you that can dump you into Camp Verde, or you can go into Payson. You know, there are other ways to come back from Flag, even if you're staying in Flag. Do a little Arizona road trip. There you go. Let me cover real quick some home improvement topics before we get back to Rosie's uh, main uh, topic of the day, the United States of America and the celebration of the Declaration of Independence that we are celebrating this particular holiday weekend. We got an email in here on somebody wants to know, Rosie, can you cover just real quickly what do I need to consider to convert my carport into a garage? You know, it's a great thing to consider because it does greatly enhance the security of your car and everything that you put in there. And it allows you to start putting in toolboxes and things that you're not going to have just on display in a carport. But the carport um, 
doesn't have the right kind of foundation perimeter footing, generally speaking. Most carports in Arizona, ranch-style homes, are done with a single or two posts that are supporting a beam, and the load concentration is on those the bottom of those posts. And that is down at near grade. Those need to be cut off from the bottom, and the elevation of the stem wall needs to come up above so any wall you're putting there is eight inches above the grade we generally do that by uh, forming up some support for the beam and then we kick the post out and then we lay eight inch block laid on top of the foundation on top of the slab undercut the slab with a little foundation cement it all in place then we build the wall on top of that that's the number one thing you need to consider don't just put t111 on that corporate corporate wall down there below grade because it's going to not hold up it's going to be against code you're going to be dealing with a mess you also then have some fire concerns once you close that in you've got to create a one hour barrier between you and the living quarters of the house. And you're gonna have to bring in some electricity for an overhead garage door opener and some lights on the outside of the garage door. So it isn't as simple as just throwing some two by fours and T111 up. That won't get it done, Rosie Wright. That's just gonna be a slop jar mess. Okay. I've answered a home improvement question. Now we can get back to the topic at hand, the Independence Day celebration. We're here with Dr. David Dean, Associate Professor of History at Grand Canyon University. And we were talking about uh, that land surveyor getting dressed up as a general, coming into the meetings. Where did he, would you, like he would just keep his wooden teeth right here in the in the chest pocket? No, I think he polished them up pretty good. And he had a big <laughs> smile on his face. Look at me. He was campaigning. Yeah. Well, he goes off and leads the American army uh, out uh, against the British, and you can read quite a bit about his successes, which really are kind of interesting because he retreated a lot. Now, people think, well, gosh, he didn't win very many battles until much later on, you know, the important ones like at Yorktown. But what really his philosophy was is that we've got this little army, and the British, the England, is really trying to deal with this army. They want to annihilate that army. And the power of the world. Right. And we just need to, we can't fight them toe to toe, but if we always have that army out there in the field, if it's moving around, if it's threatening this place, if it's over here, if it doesn't get caught and gobbled up and destroyed, then the British have to keep sending troops, they have to keep fighting, they have to keep holding territory, they have to keep doing things. And so his whole idea was kind of the strategic redeployments, these kind of uh, retreats, some would say. Is he just buying time for Franklin to get France to buy in? Pretty much so. Uh, the, it was a coordinated effort uh, to try to get that support. And again, as you, you know, if you want to read ahead, at Yorktown, the big key there was that the French Navy comes up and cuts off Cornwallis's defeat. Here's George Washington <laughs> on the land. Cornwallis is out on that Yorktown Peninsula, and he's expecting the British can, can come and uh, Navy can help him off. But here come the French interdicting that, and so now Cornwallis has to surrender. And that pretty much ends most of the conflicts, uh, the war part of the, of, the, um, of the campaign. And so he's just buying that time, keeping that army out there. And that's what made him so, so good uh, as, a, as a general. Um, he wouldn't risk the army until much later on when um, there were other generals that could take those kind of blows. But it was always about fielding that army, which was a good skill, made him very popular because he technically won the Independence War. So when it came time and 
later on to select a, a first leader under the new constitution, a first president. Well, George Washington seemed to be the natural, the natural choice. Most everybody he was very popular. He was very even keeled. He wasn't as quite of quite as brash as John Adams, and he wasn't as quite as as uh, esoteric and philo- philosophical as as Thomas Jefferson. He wasn't quite so bombastic and radical and pushing as Hamilton and some of the other characters. He was kind of that right in the middle, and so he made kind of the perfect guy for the first president. What's a Whig? Whig was a political party in the uh, uh, in England. Um, we would consider them kind of a conservative party. They were here in America. The Whig Party is the beginnings of the uh, Republican Party, but they were still slave owners at the time. What's a Tory? Tory would be a Labor Party or a more liberal type party. It's uh, almost a pejorative term for the working class party. And did Betsy Ross sow the Fleur's flag? don't believe so. <laughs> but I think Romy knows more about that than I do. Well, that's part of our article, Facts and Fiction, about the flag. And um, it is not able to be proven that she did or didn't. She was a flag maker. And there were 17 flag makers in Pennsylvania at that time. Uh, but she definitely did have a part of it. Um, the, uh, but the, the one interesting thing, I never really thought about, you know, our colors are red, white, and blue, and each one of those colors represents different, you know, characters and traits, and, uh, but it's, and I, I never thought about it till doing the research for the article. It's all the same colors of the English flag, Britain's flag. Pretty much. <laughs> mm-hmm. With different meaning, yeah. But they're also carrying around the don't tread on me flag and, and the uh, union or die flag, which is the cut up snake that has all the, you know, so there's several flags that the colonists are using to pledge that that allegiance to something different than than the Union Jack. And obviously the amount of stars changed over the years as we continue to add new states. But what I never knew is there was a time the stripes went from 13 to 15. They had added uh, Vermont and Kentucky, and that was the flag that was flying at Fort McHenry uh, during the Battle of 1812 when Francis Scott Key wrote the poem The Star-Spangled Banner. So that song and that flag that he was looking at actually had 15 stripes. Right. And then it went back to 13 uh, years later as they continued to add more stars on the field. And that flag is actually uh, in, hanging in the uh, Smithsonian in uh, Washington, D.C. It's special behind glass. You can go and see that flag that he's looked at to write our national anthem. Segment number three of our 10 o'clock hour is where we cover our weekly to-do. That's something for you to take care of maintenance-wise around your home, castle, or cabin. Each week, a lot of them are do-it-yourself stuff. Sometimes it's not. Uh, but it's what we – one of the things we do to help keep up on our homes. Ideally, your home is in such good maintenance and care that you could list it for sale today. Now, I'm a long way from there myself personally, but a well-maintained home, it's going to uh, sell faster. Uh, you're going to get more equity out of it. And it's just, you know, a well-maintained and clean home is a is a very high quality of life living style. And so that's our goal as homeowners. And our weekly to-do helps us stay on top of those items. One to-do 
a week is a lot easier than trying to knock out 10 in a long weekend. And today's kind of off the home, but on the topic of, you know, living in America and living in our homes, making sure you've got a flagpole uh, out in your yard. And the article particularly talks about in-ground flagpoles and having that displayed in your yard. Now, one of the things that goes along with etiquette of having a flag is you're supposed to have it lit at night. And I think that's one of the things that has kept a lot of them from in ground from going in because now you got to trench a line for electricity out. You've got to have expensive light that can reach up to the top. But uh, in the last, I don't know, it seems about five, seven years, a lot of different styles of solar lights have come along where the solar pack will charge a battery that goes on top of the flag, pull, and then at night when the sun goes down, that battery operates these LED lights that shine on the flag. So you've got a light without having to trench. And uh, I actually just bought one last time I was in Prescott, uh, the same place I bought my telescoping flagpole, Flags Galore and More store that's right on 69 between Prescott and or Prescott Valley and Prescott on the right side. Uh, great, uh, great place. They get tons of flags and, and poles and everything. Lighting the flag. Very, very essential if you want to leave it up all night long. We're here talking about points of the Declaration of Independence and the Constitution. And I want to talk real quick about a point or two of the Bill of Rights. We're here with Dr. David Deed, Grand Canyon University Associate Professor of History. We've talked about the Declaration of Independence that starts within the course of human events. And it goes on to list uh points of sovereignty and contesting the existing sovereignty. And then we go to the Declaration of Independence, and it comes right out and talks about sovereignty. We the people. Right. First words of our Constitution. We they, the people. They've settled where the sovereignty rests right there. Right. But in the in-between years, there was some debate about that. Uh, again, you have got these 13 states that have now technically declared independence and did they declare that as collectively, or are they now all independent separately from where is this sovereignty, where does this idea, where does power come from? Uh, many of the states were kind of worried about debt after the war. Hey, they yeah. got, how do they, you know, because they bore the cost of that in some states more so than others. Um, the There's a rebellions that go out when the when the government under the Articles of Confederation tried to raise taxes to, to kind of pay off that debt. Rebellion showed up because people were like, hey, why are you taxing us? You know, kind of a thing. We didn't, we didn't get incur that debt. We're in this little state over here. So all these issues of sovereignty and who do they answer to still comes forward. The the Continental Congress is still kind of dealing with that on the eve of trying to create this constitutional document. In fact, George Washington, after he uh, separates from the army, he writes a letter and he kind of talks about, hey, I just want to encourage everybody. Let's just remember. We're a union. We're all together. No one state is more important than the other. We have to work together. That's what is going to make this work. It's about the people within those states or the people as a whole, not the interests of Rhode Island or the interests of Virginia or the interests of New York or Georgia. And so that letter gets circulated around and kind of lays the groundwork for this shift in this ideology about the, the states having sovereignty, and they do because we are a conglomeration of these states, but really 
take that layer of the states under, out. Under a federal umbrella. Under a federal umbrella, but it, but that's all really nuanced about uh, enumerating powers. The states hold power because the states represent each of the peoples, and and we want to make sure the people in New York feel like New Yorkers and people in Virginia feel like Virginians. So we don't want to let everybody tell each other what to do. So that state's power is really, really embedded in that idea of the people. But then every once in a while, you still got to make a treaty. You still got to defend yourself. You still got to have a bank. You still got to do a bunch of stuff. So we're going to loan power very, very carefully, spoonfuls, little tiny spoonfuls of power to this federal government that's going to make a decision for all of us. You're, you're building a confederacy, a union of a bunch of different tribes. Yeah, like <laughs> I mean, it's pretty simple, really. We'll try to get thirteen cats to do the same thing, exactly. and that's exactly yeah. what they're trying to do. Oh um, man! And and really, what you, what you're doing, you're putting all thirteen cats. This is going to sound bad to the PETA people, but putting all thirteen cats in a big burlap sack. That's what federalism is really trying to do. Is trying to put them all into the same. What's common? Because let's say, for example, in our modern day, what if we had Texas in charge of our defense? That'd be pretty good, right? Texans know probably know what they're doing, but if Canada invaded, the Texans would be like, "Eh, it's Canada," you know. Um, and so uh, they we, wouldn't get nervous till they got to the Mason-Dixon line, right? And and and, and who would want to have, say, Tennessee in charge of our mail? So all of our mail, wherever it's going, has to go to Tennessee before it goes to anywhere else. So the rivalry of the states makes it where there's certain jobs that the federal government has to do. And so that's what they were working out in this idea. The Constitution is really two documents. It's this one, which we'll talk about, about the Bill of Rights, which protects us, the people, from government. But then it's also the operating manual about how government works. And so it's got to work in this kind of federalistic kind of way. And wasn't it kind of like hard-headed Rhode Island that would not even consider the declaration until all 10 amendments of the bill of rights were the, a part of it the constitution yes yeah, they, i'm sorry yeah. they um they were holdouts again this whole idea of representation was a big issue because the bigger states if you did it by population they would have more yeah, votes right, right. uh and then uh, the so the compromise is the bicameral legislature so that every state has equal representation in the senate but then has a population representation in the in the house and those two things kind of unique to us and then of course very unique if you think about how much Money is spent. Do you know where the uh, money is spent? Where that comes from in our in our legislative world? What money is spent where? Well, when the government spends money, who determines how much is going to get spent? Well, that's the House. The House does that. They have the power of the purse, and that goes way back to our legislative traditions as colonies. They have the power of the purse over the governors, saying this is what we want you to do, and here's how much money: build a bridge, build a fort, whatever. Same thing. Congress, the House, has this power of the purse, so they tell the government how much they can spend. The Senate only ratifies those things. They don't actually – today they can initiate those things, but the House are the ones that have to approve those kind of spending. So creating that operating document with our three branches of government, legislative branch, executive branch, judicial branch, and then how those different branches work, what the responsibilities were, were all part of the nuts and bolts of the government doing its job. But the rights that they're trying to protect in terms of defense, in terms of taxation, in terms of representation, all those things are all identified in our Bill of Rights and those rights that are protected. We, the people, because that's the source of authority, that's the source of sovereignty, is the people. 
that's what we have to remember. Yeah, too often. We, the people, as a part of the Constitution of the United States of America, establish the sovereignty of the land as the people. Mm-hmm. And what's interesting is whenever there's a time of uh, controversy or crisis or whatnot, everybody calls out this Congress has to act. No, the people have to act and tell Congress what we want. There's a big disconnect that we just defer to those leaders. They're chosen by us. Remember John Locke, if those chosen leaders are not doing what we ask them to do, get them out of office, put a new ones in. That's why we have our elections every two years. I think this two hours has been as educational to me as my entire semester of high school history. So I appreciate you coming in and sharing with us. Now we've got the Declaration of Independence. We have the Articles uh, Confederation. Of, of Confederation. We've got the Constitution that then involves the Bill of Rights. Mm-hmm. Now, Bill of Rights are kind of like little afterthoughts. Uh, well, we better we better include this. We better include that. Uh, Amendment one. Uh, let's let's make no law respecting any religion. Mm-hmm. So it doesn't say anything about separation of church and state. It just says, look, there's going to be no law respecting any religion. Okay, I like that. Amendment two. Well, that's the one that's so often argued today about being the right to bear arms. But Amendment three. I I never finished a week of history class in high school where I didn't have to answer a test and there were trick questions. So amendment three is your trick question from me. Sure. Okay. Here it is. No soldier shall in time of peace be quartered in any house without the consent of the owner. I think they wrote that and they went home. And they thought, you know, we, we could be stirring some things up. And then the next day they came back and added, nor in the time of war. <laughs> <laughs> well, that almost seems like an afterthought, that in a time of peace, no soldier can be quartered in any house without the consent. Oh, or not in a time of war either. <laughs> right. Well, and, and that goes racks back to our Declaration of Independence. And one of the major grievances was after the, um, the, the war that ended in 1763, in order to pay for the war and the keeping of the British soldiers here in America, the king and parliament declared the Quartering Act, which allowed the king to commandeer, the parliament to commandeer households and inns and say, you're going to feed these soldiers and you're going to have them sleep in the loft of your barn and they're going to um, you know, be in the households with your daughters and your sons and whatnot. And, and the people were like, hold on a second. We didn't want these people here. We don't, I mean, can't you put them in forts and barracks? No, we're going to let you bear the cost of them. And so that was one of their, that was a law that parliament passed that the king signed off on that was showed up in the, uh, the declaration, don't do this, we're, we're tired of this, we don't like this, because it really hurt their livelihood if they have a an extra room to rent or if they've got to feed their families and whatnot. Now you've got to feed a couple of soldiers who are going to eat them out of house and home, you know. So so this idea of of the Third Amendment is to that, that militia, that, that the soldiers are the responsibility of the state, not the people. I always try and put my head in the space of history when I'm reading history. And, and, and that one in particular just kind of tickled me. It was like, they went home, thought about it, and decided to come back, put a paragraph on that, take the period away, <laughs> put a paragraph in there, and add, nor in the time of war, not in the time of peace or war. 
uh, is a citizen ever expected to put up a soldier in their house? Right. All right. Well, folks, we're going to come back and wrap all of this up in just a few short minutes in segment four, the end of hour three of Rosie on the House, this Independent Day celebratory special broadcast of Rosie on the House, where we do everything we can in our power and our might and our resources all through the week to become every Arizona homeowner's best friend. We'll be right back. Good morning. My name is Dr. David Dean. I'm the assistant professor of history at Grand Canyon University, and welcome back to our final segment here on Rosie on the House, Arizona's favorite all uh, best friend for all of your home, castle, and cabins. Uh, I'm here talking about uh, the Declaration of Independence and the Constitution and the Bill of Rights, and we talked about how uh, John Locke's ideas was kind of a foundation of all these things. Well, when we start to look at those grievances from the Declaration of Independence, if you were a blueprint, if you were laying out kind of a plan okay. of where you're going, many of those grievances that stem from their colonial experience of how government was treating them are built into the Bill of Rights, like the Quartering Act, or like this idea about bail not being excessive, or uh, uh, having the uh, right to uh, uh, your secure your stuff, your persons without search and seizure uh, unlawfully, those things are all things from their grievances that the founders put into these Bill of Rights to make sure that that foundation is laid as carried over. This is why our country is great. This is why our country is different. And these are the rights that the people are protected from government doing against us. The In, in the Declaration, here are the grievances we have with you, King George. In the, dec- in the Constitution, then we have the amendments that are addressing those, protecting the American people mm-hmm. from any government ever infringing on the grievances they had on the, in the first place with King George. Right. They didn't want those things to rear their ugly head with a new set of government, new state, so to speak, in charge. They wanted to make sure that, hey, our rights for uh, uh, to carry arms and to defend ourselves, our rights for free speech, all those different things are, are enumerated in that Constitution and that the government can't take those away. Uh, speedy trial speedy uh, and fair trial. Fair trial. Trial uh, by your peers. Pr- protection from excessive bail. Um, the search Bone. and seizure uh, 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 amendment. All those things are to protect you from the government. I hope that in the moral of the story of this two hours, we can impress upon people uh, what, what, what's, what's, the, what's the takeaway? What's the moral of the story? For me, for me, it's where does the sovereignty lay? It lays in the people. What's your takeaway? Well, and and that's exactly my takeaway. My point is that it's we the people. We we share these documents. That's who we are. We're a mixed bag. We're a melting pot of people from all over the world, all over different countries, different experiences. But the one thing we have in common is this document, the Constitution, which is shared by all. We're all protected by those things. That's the common thing. And then that gives us also the ability to participate in our government, to participate in changes and improvements, and to realize that in that participation, whether it's voting or whether it's helping to negotiate a policy or something like that, that in that participation, good for all is generated. We, the people, do that. Not career politicians and not people that, that are out of touch and certainly not a king. 
Certainly not. And this was the grand social political experience. Abraham Lincoln called it that when he says, I hope this was this battle was not in vain and this experiment can continue. Mm -hmm. And it's still kind of an experiment today. It really is. And it's a genius experiment. I mean, the, the, the thought that went into these processes, uh, the, the three branches of government, just in that itself, is absolutely brilliant. They brought together so many different ideas and they put it into this one document that just seems to persist over 200 years and our country continues to go forward and get stronger and stronger because of that document, not weaker. You just look at the thought processes of reading the, the the documents and and you see the depth that these people have in vocabulary in, in in logic and in understanding history and knowing that the writer of the constitution was 32 years old yeah he's a young man and and it's and it's not like it's can't be picked up on abraham lincoln not only did he emphasize about we the people going through the the sectional crisis of the civil war he talked about how this union is is we the people but it's also by the people and for the people and no and 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 that's really what it is it's not for politicians it's not for elites it's not for those uh, that are not like us it's for the people all of us it's it's all of us in this together well, folks, I hope you've enjoyed the last couple of hours because I sure didn't. It was my show. <laughs> this was this was a good long bunny trail. Uh, I I couldn't help uh, in this year uh, and season of campaigning uh, to try and shine the light on uh, just how great a country you are all living in. Uh, it's it's the greatest in in my study of history and mankind and the history of mankind. It's the greatest government, the greatest body, the greatest country that's ever existed. Done more good for humankind than any other government that's ever existed. So it was my bunny trail today. If you had questions about your house, home, castle, or cabin that we didn't get to in the last couple of hours, I would tell you just to reach out to us during the week on the website, rosieonthehouse.com. We'll be back next week, and we'll be going double overdrive with homeowner questions, dilemmas, problems, maintenance, and projects because we can own our property, because we can make a decision what we do or don't want to do in our house, home, castle or cabin. If you need an American flag, get to rosyonthehouse.com. Go to the e-commerce store. We're running a special on that this particular Independence Day weekend. It's a good flag. And you know what? The flag you'll buy from Rosie on the House is made in America.